Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, editor of CapEx and your host of Free Exchange. 2019 has started with a bang in British politics. Theresa May's deal with the European Union was given a resounding thumbs down by the House of Commons on Tuesday. The Prime Minister may have survived a vote of no confidence yesterday, but what happens next is far from clear. To try to make some sense of this madness, I spoke to Henry Newman, Director of Open Europe and one of the most eagle-eyed Brexit watchers in SW1. So, Henry Newman, welcome back to Free Exchange. Um, I want to start by asking you what has changed in Brexit in the last 48 hours. There's been a lot of uh, noise and a lot of action, but in terms of the choices Britain faces, what has changed? Uh, well, absolutely nothing has changed. Um, we're back to exactly where we were before, which is that there are still only three uh, options available. Those options are to leave the EU without a deal, to leave the EU with a version of the Prime Minister's deal and to not leave the EU probably through a referendum, uh, but it also could, of course, be through withdrawal of Article 50 unilaterally. Those are the only three options. Nothing has changed. And, of course, the Prime Minister clings on in Downing Street. What does the most recent developments mean in terms of the likelihood of those outcomes? So, obviously, this was a very, very big defeat. It was at the upper end of what people was expecting. But it wasn't entirely a surprise. I think we, you know, we saw well-placed journalists like Alex Wickham at BuzzFeed suggesting that we were considerably north of 100 Conservatives opposing the deal um, last month. And we also saw roughly the same number of Conservatives vote against the Prime Minister's leadership in, her, in a vote of confidence in her in December as voted against her deal um, earlier this week. So uh, it's not a huge surprise. I think the problem is that some of the opposition to the deal is, of course, based on the policy substance of what's actually in the text. But some of it also is, to be completely frank, personal and political rather than anything substantive. And the question that we need to try and find out the answer to over the next few days and weeks is whether those conservative backbenchers are looking for ladders to climb down or crosses to crucify themselves on. And because the prime minister has called time on her own leadership and fired the start, starting gun, on the race to succeed her, a lot of MPs are now focusing on a future prize. And that's causing a lot of problems in terms of, I think, the, the capacity or the, the willingness of certain big beast backbenchers to compromise. And, but you don't see it as moving Brexit in one, one direction or the other. Does it make no deal more likely or a softer Brexit more likely? Or uh, I think a softer Brexit is marginally more likely. I think no deal remains unlikely because I think a group of MPs are trying their very best to block it. And I, uh, I sort of got a wind of this plan to, to try and seize control of the uh, House of Parliament, changing the standing orders um, 
and put uh, it's in its current form, it's no longer the liaison committee in charge, but different versions have, have suggested even putting the liaison committee uh, headed by Sarah, Sarah Wollaston in charge of Brexit, which I think would be uh, mad. Um, I got wind of this a few days ago and discussed it sort of pr- privately with um, with Nikki DaCosta, who was uh, head of legislative affairs in number 10 formerly. And you know, she said it was very difficult to see how that could work because, of course, standing orders are controlled by the government and uh, the order of selection of private members' bills is also controlled by the government and so on. But she also worried me because she said it's not impossible. And I just thought then that if you had a speaker who was willing, this is before the speaker um, seized control and selected the Grieve Amendment, uh, if you had a speaker who was willing to do almost anything, bend the rules, even potentially go against the strong advice of clerks or the commons, then it was possible that would happen. So I think no deal is less likely than it could have been. But I also find it rather grating when I hear MPs who voted themselves for Article 50 say that they don't want no deal, demand it's taken off the table, but also refuse to back a deal. That is also a ridiculous position. Um, At the other extreme, the idea of a second referendum. I don't think that's getting a huge amount of traction still, luckily. Uh, I think we've got Within the Labour Party, very, very divided opinions still. Lots of MPs would clearly like it. But I think the more that we hear from Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson, the less likely the Corbynites are to to back the idea of a second referendum. It remains possible. And of course, we currently have fewer than a dozen Tory MPs in favour of it. But that could grow. And I think the problem is that there are some Tories, particularly within the government, who are pretty soft Remainers. And they're beginning to feel, and Tobias Elwood has articulated that, that the mandate for the referendum, the mandate for leave, is going to expire soon. And they feel that they've, to an extent, discharged some of their duties by voting for the Prime Minister's deal once. And they may not necessarily feel bound to do it again. And that comes on to what will happen to this deal. So, you know, should the Prime Minister move softer or move harder? I think she'll be under lots of pressure to move softer. Because the difficulty for her going harder is that the EU won't wear it. The EU, we already know that the backstop is the sine qua non of any negotiated deal with the EU. So she can't really move very far on that. She might get a, you know, a tweak or two on the exit of it later on, but she needs to have a clear ask and she doesn't yet have that. And moving softer is obviously easier because the EU would be perfectly happy to accept that. It's difficult for her politically because it would split her cabinet and split the party very badly. And again, I think there's quite a lot of disingenuous posturing here. The calls for a permanent customs union are slightly ridiculous because at the heart of the backstop is, of course, a customs union that can only be ended by mutual agreement. That is the very problem with it as far as most of the ERG are concerned. And I simply don't understand why people would oppose the current deal but seek a permanent customs union, which is essentially pretty much a similar thing. Or equally, uh, on something like workers' rights, where it is, of course, open to any future government to harmonize to introduce any rule from the eu that they like on workers rights or equally from canada or new zealand or anywhere else that comes up with a good piece of legislation and that of course does happen sometimes so i, I think it, there's this, you know, there's as to go back to what i was saying i said something i said a minute ago some of the opposition to this is but is just political and especially i think when you look at the labor party it's very clearly so and that just to clear up that specific point the, the objections oddly on the softer side the objections are to the non-binding bit of Theresa May's deal, so that's the political declaration rather than to the binding stuff. Is that broadly, I think that's broadly accurate? Um, I I think it's difficult to say. So so there are calls from within the Conservative Party for a Plan B, by which most people mean a version of Norway Plus. Now, the problem with Plan B, heading for Norway Plus, there's lots of substantive reasons why I think being in the single market and customs union would 
be a very poor version of Brexit. I think it would be a politically unsustainable position for the medium term. I think in negotiating terms, it'd be very difficult because actually uh, the EU wouldn't let us just have Norway in inverted commas. Uh, we would be in the transition period trying to negotiate a new version of Norway because we couldn't have the regular off-the-shelf model. Um, and in so doing, we'd set ourselves up with all sorts of negotiating cliff edges where Monsieur Macron would say, well, look, you can have a version of Norway, but we're going to have need to have tighter controls on the city and financial services. We're going to need to have more of your fish. The Spanish would say we'd love a bit of your Gibraltar. And they'd all say we want loads of your money. So I think that would be very difficult. But I also think that that plan B, so-called, is really just plan A with a different bow on it. Because it's premised on accepting the entirety of the withdrawal agreement, including the backstop. All of that would be as it currently is. And all they do, as you said, is tr is tweak the political declaration and narrow the range of choices for the future. I don't think that's very sensible. But I think if you look at the Labour Party's opposition, uh, we heard Barry Gardner say yesterday that their concern was really with the political declaration, not the withdrawal agreement. And of course, that's more reasonable because the EU has really locked, they've locked down both of them, but the EU will be more happy, I think, to open the political declaration than the withdrawal agreement. But that's, I don't think Barry Gardner is, this is not the first time, Barry Gardner, the shadow trade secretary, often says quite a bit of truth. I don't think he's actually where necessarily the Labour leadership really are, the Labour strategists would be. Um, and they're unlikely to throw the Prime Minister that sort of lifeline. L Labour's Brexit policy is to have a, a, a deal with the EU that delivers the exact same benefits as membership. That is manifestly impossible, as the Commissioner said, and as everybody else has said. And Barry Gardner, of course, described it famously as bollocks. Um, let's talk about the, the, some of the Conservative critics on the harder end of the Brexit spectrum. Um, you know, lots of them have very reasonable frustrations with the withdrawal agreement, even if you're pro the deal, there's a lot not to like um, in there. So, you know, the EU has, the EU has made clear, it, with, for now at least, the withdrawal agreement is not to be touched and they aren't going to budge on it. Is there, do you think that will remain true as sort of departure looms? I mean, is, if May decided to go hard rather than soft, is there any scope for a harder deal? Or is that just, is it sort of this deal or, or no deal? I think the problem from the EU side is their space for manoeuvre is actually quite limited. And the Irish government in particular is very vulnerable. Uh, and they really, there is, unfortunately, from our point of view, unanimous agreement within the Irish, gov uh, within the Irish parliament that the backstop needs to stay. Uh, and I think if they, if they did anything to really soften that, it'd be very difficult for them. And the EU would be extremely loath to move in that direction. So I think some clarifications. Um, I think there, there are, as you, as you suggested in your question, very reasonable concerns with the deal. And I, I, I share lots of those concerns. I personally had been coming around to the idea that we were going to have to compromise more and get a, a, what I would consider a less optimal Brexit ever since the Prime Minister lost her majority in June of 2017. Because I think at that point, it became very difficult to see how the, the threat to really walk away was actually uh, as credible as it had been before. Um, and, but I think that the other difficulty is, of course, that the Prime Minister has achieved certain things since she agreed with the EU at the European Council back in December. She did actually get a, an exchange of letters with uh, the European Council that was quite substantive. It did provide for quite a lot of things. Um, this was dismissed entirely out of hand by some of her critics in the most ridiculous way as being you know, uh, completely pointless and, um, and not worth the paper it's printed on or whatever they, they said. This is, this is just silly. A exchange of letters of that sort are, can be, in international law, a mini treaty that is as binding as anything else. And I think what, what the Prime Minister has been able to do, and this hasn't 
yet been received well by her critics again. But she's she's now said very clearly that if we end up in the backstop, which is the worst case scenario of the current deal, any new law which would create a potential regulatory barrier between Northern Ireland and Great Britain would be subject to a veto by the Northern Irish Assembly. And I think in brackets, the Prime Minister has been appallingly bad at explaining her own deal. She's a terrible salesman uh, for her own policy, close brackets. But if she was able to say a bit more clearly, look, even if we're in the backstop, we can resist new deals. So, sorry, we can resist new laws applying to Northern Ireland. And if, if we, it may be that there's a new law that comes along that Northern Ireland's completely relaxed about. They may decide that this actually makes perfect sense for their dairy farmers, and they're happy on this circumstance. That, that will goes through the uh, the democratic check of being approved by the Stormont institutions, the Northern Ireland Executive and Assembly. Yeah, in that case, access to the single market on quite generous terms. Right, and th- th- this is this is what we want. To say. So, although the DUP and the UUP have been very, very critical for the deal, they're, they're not the only voices within Northern Ireland, and some have been some some while acknowledging the, the constitutional problems, the potential issue that it presents for the Good Friday Agreement. Some some people have also said, well, actually, there are some advantages here, um, and. I I think, again, this is a question of whether the DUP ultimately want to to implacably oppose this deal, come what may, or whether they're willing to find a certain thing that they will actually change their mind on. We don't yet know. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Okay. Um, lots of people in lots of different Brexit camps um, have made a similar point in the last few days, which is that we're barreling towards um, this deadline and that the. You know, the only option, the most sensible thing now is for an extension uh, to Article 50. Um, just talk me through, like, whether that's possible, um, what that would entail, what that would solve. An extension, I think, is, first of all, it's highly undesirable. Um, I, I would, from Britain's point of view. From Britain's point of view. I think also from the EU's point of view. I mean, really, I think most people want to, want to resolve this and move on. I thought we, we heard Herman von Rompuy say that it was impossible to extend beyond July, and that's because within the Lisbon Treaty itself, there's a, a particular number of MEPs that have to be elected. If Britain is part of those elections, then Britain has to have an allocation of MEPs. And that means that, uh, assuming 
that, that France would not be electing the extra MEPs that they would have if we left. I think the EU has previously said quite clearly that we can extend Article 50 in two circumstances, a general election or a referendum. Neither of those seem immediately likely. Um, and another circumstance is for a technical extension to allow for ratification to be completed. Now, that's possible. Uh, and that would be a situation where, say, we passed the meaningful vote, but we hadn't yet got the withdrawal agreement on the statute books. So we'd sort of signed up to leaving on the terms of the deal, but you hadn't tied off all the knots in domestic law. And in that case, I think we could imagine an extension of a few weeks. But that's sort of, that doesn't really, that's sort of separate kind of extension. Really. Right. What's not on offer is an extension to reopen the negotiations, have another go at all of this, and just get a better offer on the backstop. That's what the Labour Party's position is, and it's ridiculous. So the, so the, in terms of what's likely to happen then, you think there'll be a version of Theresa May's deal going back to the House of Commons, and how does that, how does that, how does that, either you think no deal's going to happen, or you think there's a way in which that deal passes. How, how does the deal pass? Uh, the, well, the, these two blocks within the Commons are at opposite ends uh, of the debate, and their positions are entirely antithetical. There's one block who want no deal now at any cost, uh, almost, and there's another deal that wants to block no deal at any cost. And at least one of those groups, and possibly both of them, are going to be very, very disappointed. And the danger, I think, that we're now in is that the people who claim to love Brexit the most, particularly the ERG, are the ones who are the most in danger of killing Brexit overall, or at least ending up with a much more suboptimal version of Brexit. Because the only real direction the Prime Minister can go if the ERG and the DUP set themselves implacably against any version of her deal is to soften and to find support amongst the Labour backbenchers. And I think that, that's not what she should do, because I think what they're asking for in terms of a permanent customs union doesn't make sense. But that is where she will be forced to go. Well, someone from the ERG might reply to that by saying the, the law as it stands is that we leave. Um, and... You know, it's hard to see how Theresa May cobbles together the numbers for a version of Brexit. So, you know, are they really risking Brexit or are they just, you know, more, being more realistic than, than you are about the, the no deal being what's going to happen? So they're right that the law as it currently stands is that we leave on March 29th. But of course, there's a caveat there, which is as it currently stands and Parliament is capable of changing the law. And that's the, the very basis on which the the anti-no-deal planners are currently proceeding. They want to put Parliament in charge of this process. I think that would be a disaster. Uh, we saw, as we discussed earlier, the suggestion that the liaison committee would be put in charge of uh, Brexit. I think um, I don't think that would lead to a better outcome. That's a committee that has a range of opinion stretching from Sarah Wollaston uh, to Bill Cash, from Bernard Jenkins to Nicky Morgan. I don't think it's any more united than the cabinet. And I think that if you if you've been looking at the, the Hansard of the debates over the last few days in the Commons, there is an enormous amount of unicorn chasing and magical thinking. You've got different MPs all coming up with their versions of the ideal possible Brexit that they would love in a fantasy world, and different MPs saying their perfect way of stopping Brexit or softening it or whatever else. And I think there's, there is more confusion about basic facts and more confusion about what's actually possible than there has been at almost any point in this debate. So I think putting Parliament in charge is not a good thing. And as a senior backbencher from the Tory side recently said to me, the danger is also that if you have the division bell ringing repeatedly, MPs voting on amendment after amendment, rushing into different division lobbies, that that is not a good process for actual rational, calm decision-making about a real issue of national crisis. I think that MPs need to think very, very carefully about whether they can live with the Prime Minister's deal, ultimately get out on the terms that we've currently agreed, and then improve it from then on. And I think that is a much more sustainable path forward. I can be as relaxed 
as, about no deal as I like. But I think that the chances are that Parliament, working with the Speaker, will find a way to block it. And, and let's talk about no deal then. Um, uh, some people do think it's, it's, it's quite likely. And you know, what's your latest, what's your sense of how prepared Britain is for no deal? How, you know, where we should, how worried we should be about no deal? So we did some work at Open Europe on the medium-term effects of no deal and found that actually over the medium term, the economic hit is relatively small. It's material, but it's small over a 13-year period. But what we couldn't model for, because it's very, it's very difficult to, was the disruption that would be inherent in no deal. And I think that would be quite profound. And it's particularly profound because we've reached, because the EU is not that willing to ultimately lend us, we don't know how willing the EU would be to lend a hand to us. If we wound the clock back a few months, when the EU was still saying that we'd have to have a Northern Ireland-only backstop. I think you could have imagined a situation where we went for no deal and even Tory Remain MPs were saying to me, there is no way I will accept a deal that divides, uh, divides the UK with a customs border down the Irish Sea. And I think in that situation, the moral high ground would have been on our side in going for a no deal and saying we can't accept this, no country would accept it, the whole of the Commons has voted against a customs border in the Irish Sea and therefore in sorrow and regret will go for no deal. Um, and I think the moral pressure would have been on the EU to reach side agreements. I don't think that will be the case now. I think the EU do think that they've offered us a deal and the Prime Minister has agreed that deal. Our manifesto position as Conservatives was that uh, no deal is better than a bad deal, but not no deal is better than any deal. And when I listen to some of the things that people are saying about no deal and leaving on WTO terms, it just strikes me as... as uh, I don't know what the right polite word is. Um, I, I guess the, one, of, one, of, one of the points about this would be that people are talking about different things often when they're talking about no deal. So you can have a conversation, right, about the consequences of trading on certain terms. Um, yeah, you but, can make the point that that's not of so course, bad, of course, but this is not separate to the yes, logistical so, question. Of course. About, so again, there, there are a lot of confusions here, and even if, the tariffs part of this would not be the main problem. It's the rules of origins uh, issues and so on that would come up as, as a result of leaving on WTO terms. We don't trade on WTO terms with other major economies like the US. We have all kinds of side agreements that facilitate trade. So it would be very problematic. And it would also, by definition, mean a profound breakdown in relations with our nearest neighbours. It would mean no surety for UK nationals living abroad. It would mean legal uncertainty. It would mean huge problems for data. I think you can go on and on and on. But I think fundamentally, it would also drive a wedge through the heart of the Conservative Party, which would be totally and possibly irreversibly split over this. And I think that you know, that's, that's not a question of national interest, but it's a question that Conservative MPs should be very worried about. And I think that clearly people voted to leave the European Union. It's important that we deliver that mandate. But is there a clear mandate for a no-deal exit? I don't think there is. I, I think that's the kind of... that. I think if you look back at what the Leave campaign were actually saying during the referendum, they were saying that we would be part of a free trade area that stretched from Iceland to the Russian border. They said that there were all kinds of models available for the EU's relationship with its near neighbours. There was Turkey, there was Switzerland, there was Norway. But we were not going to have any of those. We're going to have a bespoke deal. But they said we'd have a deal. They didn't say we'd leave without a deal. Mm. And I think the, 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 the argument that many anti-dealers are saying is that this deal is terrible because we can't do free trade deals. Fair enough. Uh, that is a problem with the current deal. We can't do our own free trade deals. But why are you, if you're so determined to do free trade deals, why are you so relaxed about leaving on WTO terms where you'd have a free trade deal with no one? And why don't you want to do a free trade deal with Europe? Now, of course, 
Europe is not our only market and other markets are growing very quickly, but it is our largest single market. And I think it makes sense to leave on good terms, agree an orderly divorce, and then we can work out our future relationship in slower time. On the point about the Conservative Party, I mean, it's, you know, I don't need to tell you how poisonous this debate has become. Um, and isn't, you know, isn't that kind of split or massive rupture looking more and more inevitable? I mean, if there was a softer, softer Brexit or, or no Brexit at all, then, you know, someone, someone whose job, if someone's making decisions based on what, is, what, means, what, what keeps the Conservative Party together, it's not obvious that anything can yeah look that's a risk absolutely in politics again this in this huge state of flux at the moment and all parties are divided i mean the yeah the liberal democrats have lost one of their dozen elected mps um who's now not voting with them because he disagrees on brexit the labor party are, are divided the conservatives are divided yes but i think you know it's possible that some mps at either end of the party might split in different directions in the future sure but that's different from a, you know, a fundamental wedge being driven through the very heart of the party, which I think leaving on no deal terms would do. However relaxed personally I am about it. Um, and I think that actually you're right that there are these big divisions. These divisions, of course, have been in the Conservative Party also uh, for many decades. Um, and a counter to that, though, is just to wonder what would happen if we if you know this is a sort of counterfactual I was engaging in earlier this week. Imagine if we woke up and the Prime Minister's deal had passed. Um, on Tuesday night and we were now leaving the EU on those terms and we could all move on to discussing what sort of relationship we want in the future with the EU where we put the question of whether we should or shouldn't leave behind us finally after three years of groundhog debate and actually start worrying about what sort of relationship we want to secure but also what we want to do with the health service with social care all these other things which are actually uh, fundamentally important to the country and I also thought that listening to Michael Gove's wind up in the uh, the House of Commons yesterday evening. The atmosphere was electric and the party was really reminded about why we're all Conservatives. Um, and all Conservative MPs voted with the government on that confidence motion, as you'd expect. And it was a, it was a unified position because ultimately it was a kind of, there was a clear, uh, a clear enemy, uh, the, the sort of looming prospect of a Corbyn government. So I'm, I'm not convinced the party will split if this is done in the right way. Okay, let's go from that very um, sort of uh, broad question to a to, to, to a more specific one, which is just walk listeners through kind of what happens next. So, um, as we're recording this now, Theresa May and the government are holding talks with other parties um, to see what sort of compromises might be out there. Um, and then, what's the next in the kind of parliamentary diary? What's the next step on the Brexit uh, story? So, by Monday, the Prime Minister has to reintroduce a motion to the Commons, which will be amendable, and then we'll have this sort of. Uh, competition for MPs to attract the maximum possible number of supporters to their amendments and we'll see which ones the speaker selects and the vote will come at the next meaningful vote will be on the 29th um, of January so the Prime Minister has a bit of time bought and in the meantime there's going to be parliamentary stasis and not very much happening now of course the Prime Minister is speaking to um, the leadership and also backbenchers in different parties perfectly sensibly but she's also not at this point willing to move in any direction really um, and I think what we possibly could see next time round is that is some of that opposition to her deal beginning to to slowly retreat, and I think that that would even if she she was defeated by an extraordinary margin this week, even if she managed to persuade forty of her own MPs to yeah you know, they registered their uh, they registered their disapproval of the deal. She persuaded them to abstain. She persuaded some Labour MPs to cross the benches uh, and vote with the government. I think it could suddenly seem like actually this was within. This was 
beginning to look more and more winnable. And she may have to make some concessions, and that's the danger, the calculation that I think some of the, speaking to some ERG people, they're very worried about, that if they continue to hold out a sort of uh, nihilistic position, then the Prime Minister will go softer. And then that makes it much, much worse for them in the medium term. So I think there's a lot to play for over the next few days and weeks. Um, But I don't think the Prime Minister's deal's at all dead, because it remains the only negotiated deal with the EU. Henry Newman, thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Henry Newman on Brexit. Thanks for listening.